A few weeks ago, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists moved their doomsday clock closer to midnight than ever before. With dire faces and stoic stances, a mismatched squad of doomsayers pulled the literal veil from the metaphorical clock and revealed that all the world is now 90 seconds to midnight. There was a brief spasm of concern, followed by thought pieces on the woes of the world and basic explanations of the history of the clock, few to none of which approximated anything like a sufficient exploration of exactly what the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists has been trying to do with its 76-year-long experiment in fear-mongering propaganda. Friends of the Vault deserve more, so let's explore. Doom Inflation, this time on the Cold War Vault. At the dawn of the Atomic Age, several scientists who had been involved with the Manhattan Project began to have a collective crisis of conscience that no number of martinis could fix. The reality of the new Atomic Era gave them sudden pause, not necessarily because of the realization of what nuclear power could do but because of the realization that so many theoretical physicists and a bevy of scientists in adjacent fields had gotten so enthralled by the question of whether the project could be done that it was only at the very end that anyone came forward to ask if it should be done. The first formal assemblage of these thoughts and doubts came from the Frank Report in June 1945. This document had been produced by Manhattan Project scientists meeting in all-night debate sessions, fueled by those aforementioned martinis, to determine whether or not the atomic bomb should be used at all. The final determination being that it should not be used, and should be kept a secret, forever, lest an arms race erupt. The report was taken to Washington, but its recommendations were dismissed. It was simply too late, and in reality, too little as well. The men who invented the technology always imagined they had more sway than they ever did. The next month, the Szilard petition was circulated. This was another attempt to bring attention to the misgivings being experienced by the Manhattan Project scientists. It was started by physicist Leo Szilard. Now I should point out that Leo must really have been twisted in knots over this, perhaps more so than the others, because he was the one who wrote the original letter that was signed by Albert Einstein and sent to Roosevelt that got the Manhattan Project rolling. The petition was a plea for general inaction on nuclear weapons, that is, don't use them and stop development. It held the position that the moral high ground couldn't be maintained if the atomic bomb was used on Japan. It had the signatures of 70 scientists, 
and likely would have had more if it hadn't been put in a drawer by Oppenheimer when it was brought to Los Alamos. A literal drawer. Of those who did sign it, 50 of the 70 were in Manhattan Project's Chicago operations. The University of Chicago was the center for development of a range of technologies under the auspices of the metallurgical laboratory, the MetLab. While these two efforts to protest and avert the use of nuclear weapons on Japan came to nothing, the shock of the sudden public revelation of what had been so secret and so theoretical drove many of those involved in the Manhattan Project and the efforts to prevent the use of atomic weapons to take another step. On September 26, 1945, a month after the end of the war, several of the Chicago-based Manhattan Project scientists formed the aptly named Atomic Scientists of Chicago. The group was made up of men whose opposition to the course of atomic events was already on the record through the Frank Report and the Szilard Letter. On the 10th of December, they started a modest newsletter that addressed some of the ethical and even moral issues associated with the use of the atomic bomb. It would be my guess that they used department mimeographs and materials after hours. Shame. Shame. This little zine was called The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, under the editorial eye of Eugene Rabinowitch, biophysicist and co-author of The Frank Report. One of the driving forces behind the creation of the bulletin was a growing public curiosity about atomic energy and issues of technology, peace, and war. The bulletin found an audience among the lay public, not just those in the scientific community, and this gave it a kind of authoritative voice when it came to these several matters of concern. To not squander this new bully pulpit, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists graduated from secret late-night mimeograph and became a full-fledged magazine in June 1947. Historian Paul Boyer writes that the public interest in atomic energy and warfare inspired the scientists to, quote, inform those interested about the dangers of the nuclear arms race they knew was coming and about the destruction that atomic war could bring about. Apologies to Paul Boyer, but this isn't entirely true. The scientists weren't inspired to inform the public curiosity. Rather, from the very start, they made it their holy mission to inspire terror. Editor Eugene Rabinowitch wrote that the mission of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists was to, quote, preserve our civilization by scaring men into rationality. Another member of the Chicago Atomic Scientists glibly told the New York Times that, quote, only one tactic is dependable, the preaching of doom. Anything else is met with yawns. Bernard Iddings Bell, who was an Episcopal priest and prolific social commentator, and someone who was closely allied with the Chicago scientists, wrote this. 
We're going to get nowhere by a campaign of education. What we need is a campaign of shameless propaganda, which will appeal to emotion and prejudice rather than to the mind. What we need for our purpose now is slogans, shibboleths, comic strips, motion pictures centering around glittering stars and crooners. The last thing we can depend upon is an appeal to common sense. Paul Boyer also writes in his book, By the Bomb's Early Light, that although the scientists consciously manipulated the public's fears, they did not do so cynically. Well, what then would you call the worldview underpinning a campaign of manipulation to achieve one's own ends, especially based on the assumption that the public proved too daft or dense to be motivated by facts? Putting that debate aside, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists wasted no time in becoming the city-corner-standing, sandwich-board-wearing, end-is-nigh-doomsayer for the Atomic Age. With, of course, the best of intentions. And they did it with something called the Doomsday Clock. As a part of the bulletin's rebranding, as a more layperson consumable scientific commentary, a magazine of popular science, Rabinowitz imagined a new look that would mimic popular magazines with graphics on their covers. In order to keep costs down, he kept it in the family in a manner of speaking. Co-editor Hyman Goldsmith asked fellow Chicago scientist Alexander Langsdorff to ask his wife, professional artist Martil Langsdorff, to possibly design a cover for the magazine. She agreed to the commission. She had attended meetings of the bulletin and noted the sense of urgency among the member scientists. To express this, her illustration was a quarter of a clock set seven minutes to midnight. This illustration would adorn the cover of every issue of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists from 1947 to the present, and become the premier barometer for eschatological anxiety in the Western world. From that moment on, the minute hand of the clock has been moved forward and back in a dance of doom ratcheting up tensions and easing again in response to a melange of perceived and proposed threats to human civilization. And in its most dire times, threats to human survival itself. In fairness to the bulletin and their creation, the clock is described this way. The doomsday clock is not a forecasting tool and we are not predicting the future. Rather, we study events that have already occurred and existing trends. The bulletin is a bit like a doctor making a diagnosis. It's true that this official declaration is made clear two-thirds of the way through an FAQ on the bulletin website. But in the many breathless articles that proliferate after the clock is adjusted, 
you might never realize that the clock is anything other than a countdown to extinction. The bulletin hardly goes out of its way to dissuade this line of thinking or assuage the fear it generates. If you've listened to the vault for a while, you'll know that I was a child gripped by nuclear terror. How many little kids' nightmares came riding in after the announcement that the whole world was 90 seconds to midnight? But of course, it's all for the greater good. You have to scare the plebeians into believing, because they can't be trusted to understand reason. Let's look at the history of the clock and the pulling of the strings. As I said before, 1947 saw the clock start at seven minutes to midnight. This was a design decision by an artist, not a comment on geopolitical risk, so we'll leave that aside. The first real change in that regard came in 1949 with the first test of a Soviet atomic bomb. It was moved to three minutes to midnight. Then, with the first tests of thermonuclear systems on both sides of the Cold War, the hydrogen bomb, as they were called, the clock moved to two minutes to midnight in 1953. There it stayed, until 1960, when a reprieve was granted and it moved again to seven minutes to midnight. The stated reasons for this include the fact that the U.S. and the Soviet Union avoided direct confrontation during the crises of Suez, Second Taiwan Strait, and Lebanon, and the establishment of the International Geophysical Year, the IGY, which encouraged international scientific cooperation. Never mind the fact that the space race was kicked off in the IGY, which allowed for the unbridled development of intercontinental ballistic missile technology. More encouraging developments, like the 1963 Partial Test Ban Treaty, brought the Doomsday Clock to a comfortable 12 minutes to midnight. Keen listeners will wonder how, in a world that had just experienced the breathless close call of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, the Bulletin could find peace enough to go to 12 minutes to midnight in 1963. The official line is that not enough was known at the time to incorporate the crisis into the Doomsday Clock decision. The minute hand floated in this channel between 12 and 7 minutes until 1981, when a flurry of world events pushed it to 4 minutes to midnight. I'll take these motivating factors from an explanation published in the January 1981 issue of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. First, new weapons systems were deployed that increased the perceived risk of a first strike. These were the Soviet RSD-10s and the USMX, or Peacekeepers. It's true that these missiles were dangerous, largely because they perpetuated the arms race. But then the statement laments the, quote, callous acceptance of the plight of the poor in the undeveloped world. The connection to global nuclear catastrophe is not made. Subsequent bullet points include the Iranian hostage crisis 
the Iran-Iraq War, the Soviet War in Afghanistan, the Chinese atmospheric nuclear test, repression of human rights, and a general increase in hostilities and conflict. And of course, no indictment of the geopolitical state in 1981 would be complete without a mention of the election of Ronald Reagan. The statement says, We would be less than candid if we were to say that the recent U.S. elections did not figure into our pessimistic estimation of the world's situation. End quote. This included both the election of Reagan and the ejection of arms control-friendly senators who lost their re-election bids. 1984 brought another notch in the countdown to three minutes to midnight, citing general escalations in tension, deployment of the Pershing twos in Europe, which created a destabilizing effect, a tit-for-tat Olympic boycott on the part of the greater Soviet empire, and another general dash of anti-Reagan sentiment. I want to point out that 1984 is truly where I see the bulletin's inconsistent standards shine through. The Vault has a four-part series on 1983 that might very well cause you to go pale with all the ways it was nearly the very bad day that the Doomsday Clock is ticking so inexorably toward. That year alone represented real and tangible dangers of nuclear war and the annihilation of whole societies. If there were truly any balance in the judgment of the Star Chamber at the Bulletin, this would be the year of 90 seconds, or 60, or 30. Nevertheless, from three minutes, the clock gave way to six minutes in 1988 as tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union began to ease. By 1990, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the reunification of Germany added another four minutes, bringing the minute hand to ten minutes to midnight. And then, the events of 1991. The Soviet Union dissolved and nothing bad would ever happen again. An orgasm of optimism shook the offices of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists as all global threats fell away and the minute hand of the Doomsday Clock moved to its most generous position in history, 17 minutes to midnight. But a gentle current of disappointment ran through the 1990s and into the new millennium. From the heady days of 1991 to 2007, the clock continued to tick, due in large part to the persistence of nuclear weapons, even in the absence of the Soviet threat. From 17 minutes to 14, to nine, to seven, to five. With a brief reprieve in 2010, the clock continued its march. Five, to three, to 2.5, to two, to one and two thirds, to one and a half, which is 90 seconds today. 
The reason for this continued downtrend is simply that the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists changed the standards used to judge the existential threat represented by the Doomsday Clock. The various changes to the clock's position were initially managed by editor Eugene Rabinowitz, but after his death in 1973, control of the assessment passed to a board of directors. In 2008, the board of directors was restructured as the Science and Security Board. This is a board of 18 or so proclaimed experts in a narrow bandwidth of fields that decides the overall average state of descent toward the end times. Their deliberations produce no minority report. What should give us all pause regarding the value of the Doomsday Clock is that as of 2008, the assessment of the board began to include a host of new threats, including climate change, biological threats, and even cybersecurity, which, as an example of certain limitations, is the purview of a single member of the board, Herb Lynn. He is seriously accomplished in his field, to be sure, but run afoul of his worldview at your peril, for he is among the clockmasters. The Science and Security Board does continue to concern itself with nuclear weapons, their proliferation and potential use, which is the original Cold War mandate of the whole endeavor, but with the introduction of new post-Cold War threats, very 21st century threats, there is an endless supply of dread. So it's hard to imagine a world in which the Doomsday Clock could retreat even a minute or two. There simply isn't enough good news to contradict the many threats that now inform the movement of its hands. Let's look at the most recent shift. 90 seconds. Seemingly the time of greatest existential peril since 1947. According to the board, this is simply the worst state in which the planet has ever found itself. A bold claim. Let's look at what's gone into the decision. This is from the bulletin's press kit for the day of the big reveal. The change was made largely but not entirely as a result of the Russian-Ukrainian war. Backing up the decision was climate change, always stylized by the bulletin as climate crisis. The, quote, breakdown of global norms and institutions and biological threats, like COVID-19. When it comes to the issue of nuclear weapons, the bulletin cites a few negative developments. The end of the last remaining arms treaty between Russia and the United States, New START, is set to expire, but not until 2026, though Russia isn't currently in compliance anyway. China claims to be expanding its nuclear arsenal, North Korea continues to launch missiles into the sea, and is allegedly preparing a seventh nuclear test, Iran is enriching uranium, and its support for Russia in the war is complicating efforts to return to the nuclear deal. And India and Pakistan are modernizing their nuclear weapons and delivery systems, as are the United States and Russia, as are all nine nuclear powers. Under the headline of climate crisis, the Russia-Ukraine war has, quote, 
undermine global efforts to combat climate change. Part of this is the energy insecurity created by Russia's manipulation of the market. Add to that food insecurity caused by extreme climatic events such as drought and flood in several regions. Bio-threats that inform the doomsday clock this time around include COVID-19, which is first suggested to be zoonotic, or having originated in animals, which is a necessary claim to make to appease certain political forces in the United States, as well as the Chinese. Though a quick pivot also adds laboratory leaks and accidents to the list of global threats, which is very clever, and notably brave. The Russia-Ukraine war returns here as a possible vector for biological warfare. There are no specifics, but one assumes a fear that Russia would deploy biological weapons as the circumstances on the ground in Ukraine grow ever more desperate. Of course, the same could motivate the use of nuclear weapons. Under the heading of disinformation and disruptive technology, the board asserts that there is some good news, if you can believe that. Well, Emmanuel Macron defeated Marine Le Pen. So, the French presidential election came out in favor of the bulletin's overt political leanings, and this somehow translates to less of a threat of doomsday. As you might expect, further optimism is engendered by a rosy picture of the defeat of Donald Trump and the success of the Biden administration generally. Specifically, Biden is said to continue its efforts to increase the role of scientists in informing public policy. The more skeptical among you might find yourselves asking which public policies in particular. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists and the Chicago scientists that first gathered to create it were always political entities. And political entities with a specific agenda. This is not surprising. And it shouldn't be. But when the product of that intense partisan push for public awareness and anti-nuclear activism, the doomsday clock, when it transcends the origin and becomes the most recognized metaphor for geopolitical risk, then it's necessary to revisit what that metaphor really stands for. Where has that metaphor begun to show its age? If the Board of Science and Security is determined to incorporate those 21st century threats into its assessment, then what does midnight really mean now? In the Cold War, when the threat was entirely nuclear, midnight clearly meant nuclear war, and all of the political, social, and environmental devastation that would entail. But what does midnight mean in a world in which the slow march of climate change is the primary driving factor behind the ticking clock? Midnight now isn't so final as it was once deep in the Cold War. Climate change, as it is currently understood, and climate crisis, as it is feared, is a completely different risk. It is slow, and its effects are largely localized. There is no midnight 
in this version of Doomsday, there is just a long, long crimson dusk. And before anything changes, even with some hypothetical, much-dreamt-of utopian energy revolution, we are in for an interminable night. The end of the Cold War was sudden, dramatic, and traumatizing. It fit the Doomsday Clock perfectly, or rather the Doomsday Clock fit the Cold War perfectly. All the tensions that had built over the decades were suddenly released between 1989 and 1991. One half of the Cold War calculus vanished, and the clock rebounded as suddenly and dramatically. World events in those days could be seen through an optimistic lens with the signing of a treaty or a productive summit. But with this new overburden of global threats, as I said a moment ago, it's hard to imagine the doomsday clock retreating even a minute or two. And especially as it relates to climate change. And if the bulletin did allow an optimistic minute, would that be seen as a betrayal of its commitment to terrify the public into action? Maybe the only moves left to the minders of the doomsday clock are to leave it stationary, or begin to budget their few remaining seconds. 80 seconds. 70 seconds. 62 seconds. Because if some kind of temporal austerity isn't implemented, the Doomsday Clock may very well run out of time, stumbling into the midnight singularity. The anxious hand wringing of the contributors to the Doomsday Clock's countdown has resulted in a kind of inflation of our sense of doom. So what should be done? What can return the clock to its position as a useful metaphor and a call to action? Well, I have a modest proposal. Let's have some fun with the doomsday clock. Let's throw out the outliers. 17 minutes in 1991 and 90 seconds in 2023. The farthest from midnight then was 1995 at 14 minutes. Let's divide 60 minutes by 14 minutes. That's four and a half minutes. Now we can normalize the doomsday clock. It actually started in 1947 at 31 and a half minutes. The thermonuclear weapons race of 1953 was actually nine minutes. That outlier, the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, was an hour and 16 and a half minutes. And the worst it's ever been this year is actually six minutes and 45 seconds. And that's plenty of time to play with, to pull at anxieties and heartstrings and scare the kids. And that's my solution to doom inflation. Unfortunately, the reality is probably just that the doomsday clock is broken. It's a broken metaphor. It is a product of the Cold War that finds itself like an old soldier in a new world. Its intentions, at least by some estimations, remain noble. A call to arms to combat the dangers that encroach on our civilization and our world. Perhaps a victim of mission creep, 
The clock addresses all of its mandates acceptably, while addressing none of them remarkably. It reminds me of the color-coded Homeland Security Advisory System that was implemented after the September 11th attacks. Many of you will remember it all too well. The graduated threat conditions were green, blue, yellow, orange, and red. Low, guarded, elevated, high, and severe. Over the years it was in use, it went to red only once in 2006. In New York City, it was always and forever stuck at orange. For the rest of the country, it bounced between yellow and orange. In its nine years of operation, the threat level was never lowered to blue or green. In fact, in 2009, a Homeland Security Task Force advised dropping blue and green altogether and making yellow the new baseline. Yellow is the new green. Benny Thompson, a Democratic representative from Mississippi, told the press that the color codes were better at causing Americans to be scared than telling citizens the reason, how to proceed, or for how long to be on alert. An unnamed Homeland Security official was widely quoted in those latter years as saying, you're never going to see that go to green, you're never going to see that go to blue. The system that had been created by Homeland Security Presidential Directive 3 in March 2002 was unrecoverably broken. In April 2011, the colors vanished from airport signage and a new, more flexible system took its place. It was one that offered to communicate precise, actionable information based on the latest intelligence instead of a blanket non-specific appeal to fear. The lesson in that change is one that could easily apply to our friends at the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists and their dreadful clock. The human mind has an excellent natural capacity for finding new baselines, for renormalizing. States of permanent alertness can become states of apathy very, very quickly. At 90 seconds to midnight, the doomsday clock has become a very insistent inducement to fear the future. And despite my snarky tone in this episode, I honestly hope that whatever good may come of the clock's appeal doesn't get lost as those within earshot begin to tune out the persistent sound of the trumpets of doom. Thanks for listening to The Cold War Vault. This episode was written and produced by DJ Kinney. If you haven't yet, have a look at The Vault's YouTube channel, as I expand video content, including visual versions of Vault series and an ongoing project of digitally cleaning up and correcting historical Cold War films and clips. And remember, the Doomsday Clock may tick ever closer to midnight, but it's got nothing on DEFCON 1. Until next time.